Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Exchanges, a Cambridge University Press podcast, a joint production of Cambridge University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobus, and today I'm speaking with Scott Gack, author of the book Born in Blood, Violence and the Making of America. Scott, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Um, I am a professor of history and American studies at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, where I also uh, direct the American Studies program. uh, And I'm a co-director of of the Primus Project, uh, a research endeavor into how Trinity College and and slavery um, are, are, are entwined at the founding of the college in 1823. Uh, I am a 19th century cultural historian uh, focused uh, on on race, slavery, uh, violence, and um, and social activism. Uh, my my first book was uh, kind of skewed more toward toward popular culture and and anti slavery activism, and uh, and now today, right, we're going to talk about uh, my new book, Born in Blood. So what led you to pivot from a focus upon anti-slavery and activism to a more general examination of the role violence played in uh, the development of America? Uh, Well, when you're writing about anti-slavery activism, you are, in effect, kind of always either dancing around the question of of violence, uh, slavery obviously being a a horrifically violent institution, um, or you're engaging with that question uh, because uh, anti-slavery activists engage with that question, as many activists in many different situations have always kind of navigated, right, the boundaries of um, should activists uh, engage a violent system, you know, in you know, respond with violence, right? Like, there's always that kind of the question of violence, uh, particularly in 19th century um, anti-slavery movement. Uh, and as I was going to, you know, kind of pivoting to a, to a new project, um, I, I was I was grappling with questions in particular um, uh, that that Edmund Wilson had once asked about. Um, the Civil War, the American Civil War being, you know, this horrifically violent event, 740,000 lives lost, um, and how we should understand that. And and as I was kind of writing pieces um, about the Civil War, in particular, uh, engaging with um, uh, the 50th anniversary of Edmund Wilson's uh, Patriotic War, um, as I was kind of, you know, dealing, kind of investigating that world, um, it became clearer and clearer to me that I, that I, you know, kind of my historical spirit here, I had to go back further, right? And as I kept on going back, I kept on going further and further back. And, and in fact, I, I created a class called Born in Blood, Violence in the Making of America, just to, you know, kind of start to work through these ideas. And the original formation of that class, you know, started um, started uh, back in the American Revolution and went through to 1950. It was kind of this massive synthesis of, of, of U.S. history. And, um, and uh, and then you know I kind of over the years I've kind of worked worked through it from there and 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 the book that is is coming out is still right this synthesis of U.S. history from 1750 now to only to 1900 thankfully um, and uh, it's 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 really a rethinking of of U.S. history through a lens of uh, a lens of violence. It was fascinating for me to read it because on one level, you're revisiting a lot of very familiar events. Uh, You're you're talking about, for example, the American Revolution, uh, the the storming of Harper's Ferry, uh, the the strikes of 1877. But 
you, there's that common thread that really stands out in your focus uh, about how violence is, is, is such a part of it. And as you begin the book, you, you, you talk about how it's, it's, it's kind of uh, baked in uh, at, at a very early stage. I just wonder if you could perhaps uh, uh, take us to the beginning of your book where you're talking about how we see it you know, even before the revolution in the uh, military activities and, 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 and the colonial development that you see uh, in the 18th century more generally. Sure. Let me let me first start with with where you you began that 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 question, which is you know kind of handling these these more kind of well in in many ways there there are lots of well known events that are that are handled some some less known and we'll, hopefully we'll highlight them a little later, but it's very intentional um, in this moment in time um, where where um, where a lot of scholars right are, are are asking us and and I and appropriately so right like this is this is not a reaction to to this scholarly work I'm about to call out. Um, they're they're asking us to reimagine how to write the larger narrative of particularly of of U.S. nationhood, um, and and offering alternative ways right to to reimagine it, and um, and there's a larger battle going on right there there are lots of people out there who say hey no you know I I, I don't want to give up right that 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 very familiar narrative that that in some ways right starts and and starts with George Washington right and <laughs> and 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 continues on from there and and I'm like okay okay you if that is our comfortable national narrative um you know let's let's explore it with the 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 kind of more modern tools that scholars bring to these investigations and and so one of them um and and this goes this goes back to to a which is unfortunately now a long time ago for me, um, to to when uh, to when I was in, in in graduate school and thinking about state formation, um, and um, and so that's that's what kind of that, that's where I, I I kind of land on talking about um, the American Revolution, the Continental Army, uh, and and trying to understand uh, the larger conversation in our in our current world about the usefulness usefulness or not usefulness of liberal government and the liberal state. Um, and and why I don't really come down on a uh, come down on a side in terms of uh, usefulness or not usefulness. <laughs> I do come down on a side of a violent or or nonviolent um, uh, or neutral right state. Uh, and and so the idea of of uh, of being baked in that that you're raising right comes from an argument uh, over whether right the the structure of of liberal government of uh, to to crunch it down to life, liberty, and property, right? The, the the whether liberal government is is an excellent structure that the people we people have screwed up, right? By bringing in um, a variety of 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 prejudices and and uh, and and notions of of power and how society should operate, We're like we've screwed up this great model, or or if the the model itself. Um, derived from a society where you know race and class and gender were kind of baked into the system, right? And so the system thus reflects, um, you know, those those structures. And and so uh, you know one of the arguments, and I'm drawing on a, a large body of of theorists uh, to 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 support me, in, in particular um, African American intellectuals who have uh, led the way in in what one would call like kind of uh, you know critical liberal studies, um, is is that you know like these moments, uh, these these structures are 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 infused uh, into the liberal state. We can't think of the liberal state kind of without those. And the way violence thus plays out, you know, within the structure is you know is inextricably linked, right? To to uh, uh, 
to to the ways those factors are uh to use your word again baked in and, and that gets to some, i mean it's uh it, it seems like there's almost a, a, an underlying level that that uh you is kind of hanging in the background. It's, it's almost like the a default setting of people. And I, I'm thinking about what your your description when uh, in, in the early chapters about the uh, formation of uh, military units uh, for the uh, the French and Indian War uh, for the American Revolution, and how it, it's uh, almost the reflexive. Uh, uh, default setting of these, uh, you know, officers as they're as they're uh, organizing and training these men, that they're the 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 first tool they're going to reach for, or or or, or you know, seemingly the, the the best tool that they think they have in their toolbox is violence. You know, violence for discipline, right. uh, violence to ensure that that their men do these uh, ex, ex, rather extreme things that they expect of them, and, and and how, as you said up in the beginning, that oftentimes is very much in contrast with the 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 identity and the experiences of these men prior to uh, volunteering or, or or enlisting in these services. You know, there 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 are really right two two military traditions. Um, that that are in play in the uh, in the late 18th century uh, in in North America and 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 one tends to be and and I don't want to I don't want to lean too strongly and I try not to to lean too strongly in into this but one is right this this concept of of uh, of militia service um, that you know especially in New England but happens throughout other parts of um, of uh, of the of the British North American colonies. Um, that um, that is is more, and, and I use this word um, quite carefully, but more democratically organized um, than than what we imagine, kind of a more traditional, uh, you know, British styled military ethos um, that is more um, more divided by by uh, by rank and class um, as well as race, uh, but. Um, but so you know, like what happens when you when you get to the American Revolution? You have uh, the Massachusetts Army, like this this first, which really is this first instance of American state uh, state violence. Um, the you know the Massachusetts Provincial Congress has created this this army. It's a conglomeration of mainly men throughout New England who have who have marched to 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 Boston to um, to uh, to push back against British forces that are that are starting to congregate in the area, and. Um, and uh, you know this group, right? They they get to elect their own officers. Um, they are, you know, the the manual to uh, to to oversee the, the the Massachusetts Army. You know, deliberately um, avoids right the mentions of of uh, of physical punishment. Right? They they think that physical punishment can can uh, can confuse men, right? And and won't get what they need. Um, and, but and this is you know kind of a nice kind of democratic more democratic model uh, for for militarism whatever you may or may not think about militarism uh, this this seems like a a, a more uh, a form that would fit with the rhetoric of of liberty and democracy that that's you know starting starting to uh to to emerge out of the american revolution however however um everybody admits that that this this form right is is an absolute mess um uh, I, I, I borrow uh, in the book from from a from a great book um, written by Paul Lockhart on uh, on the Continental Army and uh, right the, the the men are are you know urinating and defecating wherever they see fit and and this is an age where the military had you know was common practice to build latrines um, for instance but nobody wants to dig latrines that's hard work mm -hmm. uh, and in this kind of very uh, volunteer type of army like nobody wants to do the bad jobs. 
uh, and and so um, you have uh, issues of sanitation. You have uh, issues of 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 order and discipline. The the generals don't know how many men they have because, um, you know, like a thousand men will march to Boston from Connecticut, and then the next day, nine hundred of them will march back home, uh, and and so there is this this you know kind of desperation on the part of leaders in Massachusetts over what over what to do, and and what they do is they actually turn to this new body that's that's you know, congregating in Philadelphia, the Continental Congress, and they say, hey, <laughs> will you please take over? Like, take take this, um, you know, take this military body, um, which we've created. And and just to harken back to other parts in in my my introduction, right, I, there are, there's a whole bunch of, uh, of, um, of state formation theorists who say, you know, the foundation of, of the liberal state is the, you know, kind of the, the, the creation of, of the state to be able to act with violence. And so, um, you know, in in June of 1775, um, the Continental uh, the Continental Congress gives um, eventually decides to give this uh, to to give this this Massachusetts Army over to um, to George Washington, and and it's the formation of the Continental Army, and uh, and that's the moment for me. Um, you know, that's the moment when the the United States is is in effect born, right? Like this is this is the moment. This is the the state formation of violence. This is the foundation of of United. What will be the foundation of 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 you know kind of a national government? And these questions then arise because when Washington comes in, he um, institutes strict discipline. Um, you know, the the very first day he's 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 in Boston, right? The, he's he's sanctioning the the whipping, uh, the whipping discipline of of these of these white of these white soldiers uh uh you know these public displays of um of uh, military discipline he is altering the pay in in the in the army to make officers to allow officers to earn more money and and the common soldier to earn less um and and so these real like these very very stark distinctions are are being brought in and um, a lot of New Englanders, John Adams included, are are somewhat sullen over these changes that Washington and many of his Southern leaders that he's he's um, that he's bringing with him are are imposing. Um, they start to disagree, right? Over like John Adams has this famous quote about um, uh, you know about how how New Englanders have these kind of notions of. Uh, of of uh, of equality and and what he really meant you know was some kind of equality not like full equality in any way that we would acknowledge that today but more equality that freeholders right all deserve um some uh some stature and and say in in their military service uh where washington of course just thinks it's the uh, officer class who will who will uh, kind of lord over everyone um, but where these two men come together and, and where I think the Continental Army uh, and the formation of the Continental Army helps us understand the changes that will be instituted um, in the Articles of Confederation, but later the uh, U.S. Constitution um, is in um, this kind of dominant patriarchy, right? Like they, they, they agree that that men, that white men in particular, um, should um, should predominate in, in society and they're going to predominate in, in the Continental Army. Um, they are, um, you know, John Adams famously, you know, re responding to to his wife um, uh, that uh, uh, when when she asks, you know, to for for John to re, to to remember the ladies to to get to get uh, to get the people who are writing, um, who are writing uh, the governmental structures to to think about um, to to rethink how how uh, 
um, women's right to property um, uh, can can be re uh, reimagined in in a new nation. And John, of course, writes back like like we we love our our patriarch patriarchal structures. Like we would <laughs> we'd be foolish to to give them up, um, you know. And I think that that comes really you know out of these the the way in which nation and and nationalism has been forced through um, through the Continental Army. And you see. Uh, in a way, the uh, that you know that part of the DNA of the country, so to speak, uh, play out in uh, the the subsequent sections of your book. And I, I'm thinking, and I'd like to uh, you know focus a bit upon how your description of it in the 1850s, which I, I thought was a very fascinating chapter because it's you know it's before what we you know typically period periodize as the uh, American Civil War, and yet it's a period at which you are seeing. Uh, that that uh, resort to violence it, it, to deal with this, and 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 I especially like your your chapter where you talk about how it's you know the the presence in the antebellum period leading up to the 1850s, which, which shows how it's it's still this this uh, this uh, you know almost uh, uh, like a ghost in the background or or some sort of spirit in the background that that's always there that that people instantly turn to on both sides of of the divide of this increasingly polarizing issue that they're dealing with in the form of American slavery. Sure, I think one of the so you know kind of more broadly, right? The 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 book is split into into three three major sections, and and we we started off right in this um, kind of revolutionary era moment where where I'm 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 thinking through kind of these this this conception of 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 liberty um and and self-defense uh you know through a, in a you know looking through it in a variety of ways through the constitution through the continental army uh and this second section that you're that you're talking about is is really a, a meditation on um on democracy right and 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 how how democracy um was was made white um during this this era and I'll, and I'll talk about that in a second um and and how democracy was also uh an extraordinarily violent practice in this era um like you, you uh is something that you can't really can't really dispute um and and that happens in a in a variety of different ways so how was democracy uh made white uh well i think the the easiest way to track that comment um is to say um is to say that uh you know black men had the right to vote um, in many northern states, um, you know, starting in the in the in the 1790s or starting in the late 1780s, um, and uh, what we can see, so in a state like Connecticut, where 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 I live, um, in uh, uh, in 1814, they redefine um, the, they they redefine um, the uh, the word uh, free man in in the um, in the Connecticut uh, in in the Connecticut legal legal code, and then in 1818 they outright um they uh they uh they clearly make um voting a white right right they racial racialize the the right to vote in 1818 and it's not something connecticut will change until after the civil war um and um and indeed by the time you get to the 1850s um the only northern states that allow black men to vote um are um are those in New England, except for Connecticut, which which has banned the right to vote. So, um, so in this period, and and one of the things that that I that I you know kind of going back, harkening back to the to the earlier comment about 
uh, taking on familiar topics um, when uh, Alexis de Tocqueville and, um, and Gustave Beaumont come in 1831 uh, over from France to explore the United States prison system uh, and then go on to write, they each go on to write books, uh, uh, you know, some uh, around other topics uh, in the United States, Beaumont on, on slavery in the United States and, and, uh, and Tocqueville, of course, uh, democracy in America. When they come in 1831, this is a crucial moment um, and, and, a, and a new formation of, of American democracy um, and, and one that has been literally made, made white throughout the uh, 1810s and 1820s. Uh, and, and, uh, and Tocqueville you know, doesn't, doesn't ever comment on the fact that what he is exploring right, is this, um, this, this domination of the United States uh, or, or this, this leadership of the United States in, um, in, in white democratic practices, right? It's, 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 he, he ignores um, that he's only looking at white men. And when he talks about the great equality he sees in the United States, right? He's only talking about, um, he's only talking about uh, white men and white male political practice. And it hadn't always actually been that way. Um, and, um, and, you know, paired with that, of course, is he comes in 1831. Um, there was a recent presidential election a few years earlier. Um, it's the election of, uh, of, of Andrew Jackson in, in, into office. And, right, Jackson's critics are constantly pointing to his um, efforts as general. Um, and, uh, you know, during, when he was a general, right, he sentenced many people um, to death, uh, uh, that's you know as as George Washington had as the military tradition right that that I that I opened the book with, and all these you know the 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 critics are are, are pointing to this and all of not all of Jackson's but many of Jackson's supporters right they look at these criticisms and are just like we love this man because he put people to death right we we love him for his kind of author authoritarianness and his directness in in handling people. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, the, at, at this very same time, right, that black men are being denied the right to vote, states are opening up the right to vote, um, for white men broadly across the, the spectrum of class, right? It's, it's, uh, um, the right to vote starting in in the very earliest days of the United States where it had had been bounded by usually property requirement um, or some other kind of economic factor right that would prohibit you to vote unless you had like five hundred dollars worth of property of real property um and so but by the time you get to the 1830s and certainly by the time you get to the 1840s right those restrictions on white men have been dropped uh and so you have an expanded white male electorate um you have a presidential candidate, uh, a president, actually, a two-term president who will who will have um, you know kind of invigorated um, a, a a brawling type of spirit, and the ballot box um, was was a place where where people did fight. Um, add into this right the question of of slavery and anti-slavery. Um, and you know, by the time you get to the 1850s, you 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 actually have you know you have these forces, um, particularly obviously famously in 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 the territory of Kansas, where the federal government will say, hey, you know what, we're going to create some kind of election over this 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 uh, this question in 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 the territory of Kansas. We're trying to figure out like how, whether it should be slavery or anti-slavery. You know, we've developed this idea. Um, it's going to be a vote. Like, what's more American than than voting? Um, you know, and it's just like white men are going to pour into this territory to decide on the lives of black people. Um, you know, like whether or not slavery or not is slavery is or is not going to going to be introduced into this space. 
Um, and we're not going to tell you like how we're going to, you know, like at what point the elections are going to happen. We're not going to tell you um, how the election should proceed. And, you know, people people are going to die. People die. Um, people rush into the territory. They are armed with these these new weapons that that um, that Samuel Colt has started to develop in mass in Hartford. Um, right. They have these wonder they, these advertisements that, you know, just like, hey, if you're going to Kansas, don't forget to buy one of our guns. Um, <laughs> so you're militarizing you're militarizing the space. Um, you know, people are coming in um, and with with strong political ideologies uh, and um, with 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 feelings that they are are right. And, and righteousness is actually, you know, it's something we don't talk about in, in scholarship because it's not, you know, it's not something that's so easily tracked. Um, but um, but but there's a way right in which so. Right, forty. We we think about forty percent of of Americans in this in this antebellum era are, um, you know, belong to 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 um to some kind of even evangelical Christian, um, uh, belief. Right, and 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 forty percent is it's like one of the largest minority cultures in in U.S. history, and um and evangelicalism, you know, along with evangelicalism comes a sense of righteousness, and and this is on both sides of this particularly um, fraught issue. Uh, and, and righteousness means you are willing to die for, for your beliefs. Um, and, and, you know, that's an idea we can trace back to the American revolution as well, right? This idea that you are not worthy of kind of Americanness, right? Unless you are willing to die for your beliefs. Um, but when those beliefs aren't shared, right, that, that, that's um, that creates a whole whole other problem, and and I talk about you know how the federal government deliberately pulls away from from Kansas, right? They don't send in troops, and when they do send in troops, they send in troops um, to support um, to to kind of lean toward the pro slavery side. They very deliberately target what they consider are who they consider are very are anti slavery activists, and they take away their guns. Um, and so activists at that point are pointing to the Second Amendment, and the Republican Party will point to the Second Amendment when it's formed in the eighteen fifties to say to say, hey, remember, like there's a Second Amendment, um, you know, people need need guns. And, you know, we often in our in our more current day think of the Second Amendment as a um, as something that that uh, more conservative forces in society uh, may hold. But in the 1850s, uh, it was a, a, a center point of uh, the 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 more liberal party, which was the Republican Party in the 1850s. Um, it's part of their platform. right? <laughs> like so. You know, like these these battles and 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 the vi how violence plays out in these spaces, um, you know, are 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 central to 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 reimagining, um, to reimagining U.S. history. And and I I, I think in terms of the democratic practice, uh, in some ways it it seems more in, in some ways it's almost if you read through the 1840s and 1850s through the lens of violence and democracy, um, are more recent events in. Um, in uh, a particular January event uh, in our recent memory, right, becomes part more part of a tradition, in particularly of of um, of of white self defense of 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 government and and the ability to or the want to overthrow a government with with you know whose whose policies you disagree with um, seemed right aligned right with a with a longer tradition in um, in the United States, and that seems to have that, that you know since that 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 process have been internalized is something that you develop in your final section where you're talking about how after the civil war after this uh unprecedented uh you know uh expression of violence uh after the you know the the massive death toll caused by that war uh instead of say you know 
turning your back on the turning back on the violence and, and and saying that violence is something that we've had more than enough of how it you, you see the, the the it produces leaders uh who are willing to use violence in uh, other ways such as dealing with labor unrest uh such as you know dealing with uh you know native americans on the frontier and and how it becomes you know it, it's it, at this point it's, it's it's the norm uh seemingly more than the exception so this last section right deals deal definitely deals with this this question of labor and industrial capitalism and and um and you know the the civil war has traditionally been seen as 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 a real pivot point right obviously in industrial forces are uh we like we can we can mark them uh, much earlier right but predate the civil war by by many decades uh in the united states but uh, after the Civil War, um, you know, it's the the United States is is um, tied to industrial forces in in ways that it hadn't been previously, uh, and and there's a way in which the 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 violent tradition, um, while it is um, similar to um, to what happens uh, before the Civil War, uh, there are also ways in which it it has been changed or or tr uh, retranslated uh, into something some somewhat different, right? So, um, so if you know if American slavery um, featured interpersonal you know you know uh, interpersonal violence that of 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 the um, of the enslaver over the enslaved, um, if the um, if the pre-Civil War era, you know, features, um, you know, uh, military officers, um, uh, you know, um, disciplining uh, their their soldiers, if, if we can think of them as being part of a part of a workforce, um, you know, that gets reformulated in this in in this era into slightly different ways, right? There there are kind of economic forms of of violence of. Um, of, uh, of of the deep insecurity of uh, the deep economic insecurity of the times, right? The the wondrous booms and busts of the age that that are um, that are terrifying for everyone, but are particularly terrifying for for those at the bottom of the economic scale, right? Who 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 have no resources to to tide them over through through those through those busts, who have no resources um, when their their unlivable wage uh, gets cut by by 40%. Um and and so, you know, how do we how do we then grapple with what becomes somewhat of a somewhat of a new uh, a new violent tradition that is tied to old ways but again um turns turns into into different ones and you know, so many people when thinking about United States history are uncomfortable with with um, with even saying that term, right? Labor, um, like labor history, has a has has com connotations of of um, of, uh, a, of of radicalism, particularly like European radicalism and Marxism and socialism, and and that's part of the story, un undoubtedly. Um, but um, but in many ways, um, I think I think that uh, that that framing has to do more with uh, um, with the words and thoughts of of business leaders, particularly in the late nineteenth century, who were who were using those words to describe their 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 workers. There are many immigrant workers um, from from Europe, and they were just like, oh, they're radical, they're socialists, they're they're bringing in the spirit of eighteen forty eight. We can thus use violence against them because they are un American. Uh, and um, right, and that that formulation can can be can be parsed in in um, in several different ways. But so, how do we understand? Uh, uh, you know, for me, it's how do you understand 1877, this pinnacle of American labor violence? Uh, we could go 1877. We can talk about 1886. We can talk about 1894. These are all mass, you know, massive waves of strikes that that 
you know, rip through the nation? Um, and, you know, how are we to understand uh, what happens? And scholars have been, you know, have been have been probing this and trying to understand um, this horrifically violent moment between, you know, 1870 and 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 1930 uh, in, in a variety of different ways. And, and one of the ways that, that people have, have asked, you know, have said, hey, this is the source of American labor violence is inequality. Um, the problem is in the last 10 years, we've had a lot of, of great work come out on, on global inequality. Uh, and, and it turns out, right, that from 1870 to, um, to, to 1900, the United States actually has far uh, is is um, is a quote unquote more equal society than what we find in Europe. That is, European workers um, uh, made less, had less wealth than the top ten percent in European societies. Whereas the the U.S. Um, actually had a the, the workers and and those on top are actually closer. Right, the United States doesn't take a global lead uh, in in um, economic inequality until after 1960, and and we've done so amazingly well since then. Like our 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 numbers are. Are, are ridiculous, but but that's not the case for the late 19th century, right? And so mm -hmm. we kind of have to shift. It's like we can't understand inequality as the cause in and of itself, right? It certainly is a part of the equation, but it's not everything. Um, and and so what I'm looking at, what I what I look at, and what I find is that is that worker repression and uh, in the United States is actually far greater um, than than everywhere else, and um, and it's um, it's that push. It's that push onto uh, onto workers, the workers having to fight for the right to unionize, which they don't have to do as much in in Europe, right? That that becomes right the the key to understanding uh, why the United States is an outlier in in by and large, uh, with Russia being the only other uh, outlier here uh, in terms of worker deaths in in this era. The use of violence to deal with uh, labor is also something that, as you explain uh, at the end of your book, also informs. Uh, there's an element of that when dealing with uh, in how violence is used against African-Americans uh, in the post-Reconstruction era. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that and how violence uh, undergirds, if you will, the uh, Southern response to the their, in a sense, failure to use uh, violence successfully to uh, maintain their slave regime. Sure. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that... that um... That, that that I try to 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 absorb in um, in this post-war era, uh, obviously, is 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 you know violence against against workers, but not all workers, right, are are on an equal kind of an on an equal plane, right? We have we have divisions of of skill, right? Like higher skill uh, higher skilled workers are easier uh, more easily pushed back against changes to the system than those who are lower skilled. Um, they're also Divisions of of race and 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 gender in in the working class that that I explore and 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 that leads me right to 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 the final to the final bit of um, uh, of this uh, of the book which 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 talks about how a a fervent form of of white supremacy um, emerges on the national political scene in 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 Congress where we have some of the first um, black. Uh, 
uh, senators and representatives. Uh, there are 22 of, of them in the in the post-war post-war era who are, um, are who are all from the the South, where where black men um, in several different states right form majority voters. Um, but at the same time, uh, because there has been a spirit of reconciliation among among white leaders um, that will um, predominate through through the 40 or 50 years after the Civil War, um, the um, there are former Confederate leaders who will also be in Congress at the same time, and and many of them are are former enslavers, uh, and they bring with them a a, a virile, fervent, disgusting form of of white supremacy, um, and you see the verbal battles in Congress, and and I think from those verbal battles that happen between these these. Uh, white Southerners and um, and and black Southerners uh, who are the you know national representatives, uh, uh, national lawmakers, uh, and 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 uh, you see these conversations happening, and I and I detail them, and I and I, I you can you can really see how how the words start you know words lead to deeds right to anti-black deeds, uh, and and Mark you you frame this question as a a Southern problem right as a um, that that it's in the Southern sphere that um, you know. That and in particular, we're talking about a, a tradition of of, of lynching uh, in the United States, uh, and 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 I actually open up that framework a little bit to to um, to talk about how how anti-black violence um, can be marked throughout. Um, throughout North America, um, in particular, I, I focus on on um, on the United States as as a whole. Um, you know, going from like 1840 through the 1890s, um, but also into Canada, uh, where um, there are um, where obviously uh, uh, American uh, fugitives from slavery have created a kind of larger black communities. There, 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 um, and uh, and and anti-black violence. Um, in the age of American emancipation, can be seen right throughout all of these all of these spaces, and I and I and I kind of struggle to um, to 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 understand right this this larger tradition of anti-black violence that has its most public and dramatic um, reenactments, or sorry, reenactments is the is the wrong word, right? Has has the most um, dramatic takes on the most dramatic form. Um, in in southern spaces, but it is not limited to those southern spaces. And I, I I I grapple with the question that many of us grapple have grappled with in our own lives, right? Of the quest, questions of complicity and how far how far out the circle of complicity goes um, in in the late nineteenth century, and how we're supposed to understand this system of of anti black violence. And and if I may close, um, you know, because one of the one of the largest takeaways of of the book is to try and get readers to to think of violence in the United States not as um not uh as episodes right um scholars use the term like episodically right um but to think of it as as a as a system um and in, in, in which there are varying levels of of complicity that are required to make the system work and and and, and American lynching or anti-black violence is certainly one of those systems well, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Oh, sure. Um, my 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 current project is is uh, is called Married to Slavery, uh, and it's 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 trying to to understand how how um, what I've what I'm framing right now as 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 loving how loving couples ha navigated the the divide between between um, between slavery and anti-slavery and race um, in in the antebellum era. Uh, sounds like a fascinating project. I look forward to reading it when it comes out. 
Thank you. Scott, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. I hope you do too, Mark.